Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. For the Culture Club tonight, I'm delighted that we're joined by an old colleague of mine from the Sunday <laughs> Tribune, yet another one of our former writers in the Tribune who went on to bigger and better things as an author. Anna Carey has been one of Ireland's most successful children's novelists in over the years. And now one of her books has been brought to the ARC Children's Cultural Centre as a play. Which one, Anna? It's The Making of Molly, uh, which is the story of a young girl in 1912 Dublin who decides she wants to become a, a secret suffragette. And the ARC approached me about five years ago and uh, commissioned me to write the play. But because of COVID and, uh, you know, the backlog that that created, it's it's finally coming to the stage now, which is uh, which is very exciting. Did we have a suffragette movement here in Ireland campaigning for women to have the vote? Yeah, we really did. And it kind of gets overshadowed in the popular imagination by the nationalist movement, you know, that was obviously... Um, of the time. Of the, yeah, and, uh, and the predominant issue of the time. But, like, the suffragettes in Ireland would have been very visible and people would have known about them. And, like, a lot of the leading independence um, activists were very pro-women's suffrage, which kind of gets overshadowed now. But there's an amazing photo um, of... Uh, <laughs> One of them, um, of one of the 1916 signatories with their like votes for women poster on the mantelpiece behind them, you know. So it was very, it was surprisingly mainstream at the time. And tell us, how do you bring a story like that to children in an accessible way? Well, it's basically the story of a girl who becomes aware of injustice, and that's something that young people can really relate to. And you know, when you're cutting a 300 word play or book into a you know hour long play you have to focus on the core of the story. And I I worked with um, an amazing director um, called Sarah Baxter uh, on crafting a script that sort of pared the story down to its essences and, and made it fun because, you know, it's a funny book. It's not, uh, it's it's about big ideas, but it's it's about somebody sort of finding their voice and, you know, finding the adventure of, uh, of, of having your say in the world and trying to make a difference. So when you're writing for children, be it for a book or for the stage, engagement often has to come through humour, does it, even when you're dealing with big, serious subjects? Yeah, I think that's really true because, you know, I, I really dislike the equation of serious and sombre. You know, I think you can make really good points and you can talk about serious things while being funny and it's a much more accessible way of of absorbing a message and you know essentially even though Molly's story is set in 1912 everybody now can relate to seeing injustice and unfairness in the world and wanting to do something about it so in that way it's it's a universal idea and how many books have you at this stage published seven which I find quite hard to believe myself. But, but like, you sort of take, you take, um, Rebecca was your first major character, wasn't then Molly your second one? Yeah, and uh, close-eyed close readers of the books have noticed little Easter eggs that Molly's surname is the same as uh, Rebecca's mother. And in my most recent book, The Boldness of Betty, which is set during the 1913 lockout, um, in which, which my own great-grandfather was, uh, was out on strike um, as a dock worker, her, her surname is the same as, as, as Rebecca's. So they're all kind of related, in my mind anyway. They're, they're all the same extended family, so there's more similarities between them than one might think. Let's move to your culture club choices. And 
a single. We asked for everyone for the first single. I think we have to change this for the first piece of music because a lot of people don't even remember singles, but you did have a single. Well, actually, <laughs> um, kind of cheating here because I can't remember the first single I bought and it was probably some random indie band in about 1989, but I know that when I was a bit younger, my music collection consisted entirely of, now that's what I call music, albums, which were... There's been a fair few people we've brought onto the Culture Club who would have said the same. Because that's where you got your collection of singles. So, you know... And good value for your money. Very good value. They were they were double tapes. Um, so, I remember Christmas 1985, either when I was 10, my either my older sister or I got Now Six and my favourite song on it was You Are My World by the Communard. So, it may not have been the, fav- the first single I bought, but it was definitely one of the first pieces of music that I, like, replayed intentionally so uh, it was it was kind of the equivalent of having a single I want to see if I can remember this sound good to you. It's still the sound of pure joy, as far as I'm concerned. There's just something about the way you just keep building up on that gorgeous piano riff. And it's, it's just happiness in a three-minute song. I love it. Okay, that's You Are My World by the Communards. So, a favourite album. You actually managed to plump for one. I did. I've, I found this whole procedure, like the whole choosing favourites of all uh, mediums and genres, very difficult, but... Most people cheat and give us lists. Oh, God, if I'd known that, I would have done it because this was very tricky. But I chose Hearts and Bones by Paul Simon as a... Because uh, it honestly is one of my favourite albums of all time and I know, probably know, still know every word to every song. Um, but I wanted to choose it as a tribute to my dad because he died very suddenly, um, just collapsed and died in November. And well, I'm sorry to hear that. I actually met him a number of times. I used to run into him at Toner's and Vagas Street <laughs> many, many years ago. He was in the Department of Finance around yes. the corner, so that was their go-to pub around, which yeah. is across the road from the Tribune offices as well. Um, oh, so I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't know that. Oh, thank you. Um, but he was a huge music lover and he passed uh, many of his, his excellent musical favourites onto his daughters and uh, Hearts and Bones more than any of the others just feels like absolutely the sound of my childhood it's like um, that on on a Sunday afternoon my dad reading the paper me and my sister is making like Lego villages or something and this uh, these gorgeous sort of slightly melancholy but slightly joyful uh Paul Simon bangers playing away in the background. Because that isn't necessarily a Paul Simon album that people would have picked out as the most obvious choice, is it? Yeah, I think it's kind of a bit of a hidden gem because it came out a couple of years before Graceland. So I checked what year it was because I had a vague idea. Um, but it was it was 1983, which feels about right. And it was, uh, Graceland was such a huge hit that I think this kind of got overshadowed. But 
it's it's just superb. Like there isn't a bad song on it. And um, when uh, at my dad's funeral, when we went to the went to the crematorium, the music we played, people were coming in was the title track. Um, but I I did not choose that today because it would probably make me cry. But I did I did choose another another banger from the from the album because uh, to be honest, you could choose any song and they're all good. The one you have chosen is "Think Too Much." And in the night my father came to me And held me to his chest He said there's not much more that you can do Go on and get some rest And I said, yeah, maybe I think too much Maybe I think too much, oh Maybe I think too much Maybe I think too much, oh Maybe I think too much Maybe I think too much Maybe I think too much Graceland didn't come up for three years after that but having heard that I'm, I'm not familiar with that song it does sound like though that the influences from African music were coming in even before Graceland became a big hit. Yeah, it's really striking in retrospect, uh, you know, retrospectively that you can hear that sort of Afrobeat yeah. sound in it. So, you know, he was definitely a big, a big fan. Um, and yeah, that album has like, it's got a mixture of these sort of like more low-key songs and then there's some proper dancey songs as well. And uh just this gorgeous, slightly wistful tone all the way through it, and I, I just love it. And it's actually a really nice thing about having a parent who's, you know, a big music fan is that it gives you ways to remember them afterwards. And yeah, Hearts and Bones is, is perfect for that. So I'm actually delighted to be able to share it with the world. Excellent. Favourite band? We again made you plump for one. <laughs> so difficult. Well, but you went for Beastie Boys. I did, because I was thinking, like, what, you know, bands that, there's loads of bands I love, but bands that I feel actual huge affection for are slightly rarer, and the Beasties are one of those bands. They're they're so funny, they're so inventive, and, you know, musically uh, imaginative and versatile, and, you know, they were, they were a band that got trapped in this jokey, bratty image that they started out with, and then very publicly kind of grew up and realised, oh, wow, okay, people don't realise this is a joke and, um, you know, that's on us. So I love the fact that they kind of grew and developed, were still incredibly goofy and smart and managed to bring the whole world into their, you know, into their jokey world. Like, we, the reason we have the haircut, the mullet, or call it the mullet, was because the Beastie Boys invented that word for it in their magazine, Grand Royal. So, uh, you know, they're, they're chained, they were more influential than people might think. And the mullet is back, albeit with a slight variation at the moment, That's but it true. is back. But until the Beasties coined that phrase, we had no word to describe that distinctive do. So, you know, we owe them, we owe them a debt for their, you know, don't, their contribution to the English language. You picked out a track, though, from the 1989 album Paul's Boutique called Hey Ladies. Why that track? Because it's really funny and it's sort of the, the time when they were still kind of playing with this, like, uh, you know kind of bratty, not quite sexist because, you know, I think they were they were all like in punk bands with 
feminist girls in their early years. But So I don't think they'd ever go too far, but they were still sort of having fun with these cliches. And I mean, how can you not lie, like a song that's got uh, a song a song that's got the line and beatnik chicks just wearing their smocks. It's just gloriously ridiculous. I love let's it. Hear a lot, let's hear a bit from it. one of the choices from Anna Carey the author who is with us for the Culture Club and so best gig I suspect you've been to many many gigs but you've picked out one which I'd suggest very few of our listeners were at well, I discovered the French musician Clara Luciani during lockdown in the beginning of 2021 and I've, I've always been into like that sort of classic very French French pop music like uh, you know, Serge Gensberg and Francois Zardy. But uh, because I didn't speak any French, I was not au fait, so to speak, with contemporary French pop until started doing French classes in the Alliance Francaise. And um, when, during lockdown, I found myself like reading loads of French ma- magazines and social media and stuff in a vain attempt to pretend I could leave the country. And Clara Luciani had a... Um, a new single out that uh, I think it was April of that year called The Rest and it just became the soundtrack to like hope and you know the si- maybe things were going to finally get a little bit better and when I found she was playing a gig in London a year later um, my sister lives over there so I persuaded her to come along with me and it was the most cathartic thing I'd ever been to it was in Town Forum it's a big venue I think we were like one of five non-French people in the room and if it had meant something to me to hear this sort of voice from another country, this melancholy but bittersweet kind of joyful um, disco princess it meant so much more to all the French people in that room and it was just a night of non-stop dancing, the most like cathartic thing, the best atmosphere and it really symbolised to me uh, kind of waking up from had, what had been a very, I think for all of us, stressful and dark time. We've so. got a clip of La Rest from that performance at Kentish Town Forum in London, October 2022. <gasps>
ask you to translate all that from us. <laughs> Very Christina the Queens-like as well, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so, now you say it. But, um, yeah, I'm, you know, I don't think I would have ever discovered her if it wasn't for, you know, the sort of lockdown uh, escapism. So it was so amazing to, to see her in person. No, I'm told that actually isn't the live version. That's the album version. But I was going to uh, say, it was like, it sounds really so clear. <laughs> that it Clara Lucia, Luciani, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, it's, uh, it's obviously an Italian name, but she pronounces it in a French way. But okay. um, yeah, she's, uh, she's fantastic. And actually, she was so good that I would consider when her next album comes out, I would go to France to see her live because it was just a joyful experience. Good excuse. We'll have more of the Culture Club with Anna Carey when we come back after this. Welcome back. Anna Carey is with us. She has written many novels for children, including The Making of Molly, which has now been turned into a special stage event for children, which is starting in the Arc, with uh, previews from the 23rd of February, officially opening on Sunday, the 25th of February. So let's go to your other choices. Actually, let's go to plays and musicals before we get to movies. And you've picked a play and you've picked a musical. So tell us about your love for The Plough and the Stars. So the first time I saw The Plough and the Stars was in the late 80s and it was that famous production with Donald McCann and John uh, John Kavanagh and Rosaline Linehan. And it blew me away because I'd never seen anything like that about Irish history and, you know, he was from the North Inner City. My dad was from the North Strand. And you love that period of history, clearly, given it just has so many of yeah, your books there. Well, exactly. It's just, it's really interesting. And it also really captures a very specifically Dublin way of talking and way of humour that is very familiar to me. And um, and I did draw on Sean O'Casey's autobiography when I was writing The Boneless of Betty because it's set in 1913 and he's got like first-hand accounts of being in Liberty Hall during like this, you know, when they're preparing the soup kitchens and stuff like that. So um, it was, I think it was the first sort of grown-up play I ever saw as well, which meant it had an even bigger um, impact on me and despite the fact I did it for my leaving search that didn't turn me off so it is one of those plays that whenever there's a you know big new production of it I I will go and see it because it's it stands up just astonishingly well as a dark comedy um, which is one of my favourite genres and I think O'Casey gets like it can get very sentimental at times, but like it can be properly hilarious and just incredibly dark as well. Your musical though is entirely different. Mary Poppins. (laughs) I love Mary Poppins so much that my second book is centred around a school production of Mary Poppins, Uh, even though I could not quote any of the songs because if you quote song lyrics in a book, you have to pay. Pay royalties for for it, yeah. um, But uh, it's just full of bangers the whole way through. It's got a suffragette anthem in it, so, you know, of course I have to, to love it. What song is that? Sister, um, Sister Suffragette. It's the song that Mrs. Banks sings. Um, and uh, and it's, a, it's a delightful feminist anthem, but it's, it's also... Um, it, it works very well as a stage show, because I did see the, the West End show when it came to Dublin... But I think the film, despite Dick Van Dyke's accent, is just a delight. Well, from the West End production of Mary Poppins, the track we have is Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. That's not what 
Of course it's a word. And unless I'm very much mistaken, I think it's going to prove a rather useful one. When trying to express oneself, it's frankly quite absurd to leave through lengthy lexicons to find the perfect word. A little spontaneity keeps conversation keen. You need to find a way to say precisely what you Supercalifragilistic expialidocious from Mary Poppins. Now, from movies, you like your old movies, don't you? Because you've given us two. First, tell us about a 1940 movie, His Girl Friday. Oh, well, this is one of my... Uh, obviously, it's one of my favourite films of all time, but it's the, the most perfect romantic comedy with Rosalind Russell and uh, Cary Grant. And uh, it was a reworking of an, a play called uh, The Front Page, which was not about a, you know, a, a romantic couple, but in the, in the film, or in His Girl Friday, they changed it. So it's an ex-husband and wife and the uh, Hildy, the ex-wife played by Rosalind Russell, is planning to leave being a newspaper man and she's going to go off and mar- marry this kind of nice guy, but boring, uh, played by Ralph Bellamy. And Cary Grant tries to lure her back with a big case and the dialogue is whip-smart, super fast, uh, just Sparkles, and as somebody who's a big fan of like classic women's pictures from this era, it's it's one of the best screwball comedies. I just love it. And then you also have a post-war British fantasy romance, a matter of life and death. Yeah, I love Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, the duo who made this. And they also made like Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes, famously Martin Scorsese's favorite film. And it stars David Niven as a. Um, as an airman, a British Air, RAF officer who um, is crash lands and he should have died, but the the conductor who was meant to take him to the afterlife got lost in the fog, so he's left on Earth. But, uh, you know, the laws of the universe dictate that he should, you know, shuffle off this mortal coil. So he he enlists the help of, uh, of a friend of his to uh, try and, and fight for his life because he's fallen in love with a young American. Let's hear a clip from it. Who are you? We should have met yesterday at O4 Wano, mon cher. Unfortunately, I missed you. Well, you couldn't have missed me because I wasn't here. Now, who the... I bring you a message from Mr. Trubshaw. Bob? Bob's dead. Oh, yes, he's dead. He says, what ho? Well, that sounds like Trubshaw. But he is dead, isn't he? En effet. But how? Why? Cannon shell. And what should happen to a man who jumps from his aircraft without his parachute? How do you know? But it is I who am telling you, my friend. It is I. Your time was up. But they missed you because of your ridiculous English climate. I am French. 
But what do you want now? You, my friend. What for? To conduct you. Where to? To the training center. Training for what? For another world. You don't mean... But, my dear friend, that is just what I do mean. Okay, a matter of life and death. Favourite book? You must have loads of books to choose from, but you got one for us. I did. This was very difficult and I was literally wandering around bookshelves going, oh, that, that, mm, I don't know. Uh, but I chose a book that isn't really like anything else and it is Anti-Mame by Patrick Dennis, which was a massive bestseller in the 50s, but which um, was out of print then on this side of the Atlantic for a very long time. And like many of my favourite books, I discovered it just wandering in a second-hand bookshop when I was a teenager, probably a charity shop, um, because we had to make our own fun in Dublin in the early 90s. And it's the story of... um, this little boy uh, who goes, initially a little boy who is orphaned and goes to stay with his extremely glamorous anti-mame in the big city. And she's an outrageous, um, very camp, but uh, very, uh, very kind, um, unconventional maternal figure. And as Patrick, the hero, grows up, um, Mame goes from one sort of scrape to another, but she always comes out on top and her heart's always in the right place and uh, she, it's, it's a delightful romp. We have a little bit of an extract from the audiobook. This is Christopher Lane doing the reading. The book must have seemed like an ideal tonic to the Donna Reed torpor of the era. The 50s established the American suburbs as a brand of family paradise, while Auntie Mame was a celebration of Manhattan uproar, of sleek penthouses and people like Mame's best friend, Vera Charles, a famous actress from Pittsburgh who spoke with such Mayfair elegance that you could barely understand a word she said. Mame Dennis, perhaps swathed in Chanel chiffon with just a suggestion of sables, was the intoxicatingly perfumed antidote to Mamie Eisenhower in her dowdy shirtwaists and neat bangs. If Auntie Mame has an enemy, it is the stuffy, aggressively middle-brow folks, like the Upsons, a clan with whom she briefly tangles. The Upsons lived like every family in America wants to live, not rich, but well-to-do. They had two of everything, two addresses, the flat on Park and a house in Connecticut, two cars, a Buick sedan and a Ford station wagon, two children, a boy and a girl, two servants, man and maid, Two clubs, town and country, and two interests, money and position. Christopher Lane reading from Aunt Mame by Patrick Dennis. A lot of TV shows for you to tell us about. You were a particularly big Buffy fan as a teenager, weren't you? Well, I, I wish I was a teenager. I was in my early 20s when it started. But, um, okay. It was one of the... Buffy is, is, is mad because it's one of those shows that if you were into it as an adult in the late 90s, you became very evangelical about it. Emily Nussbaum, the New Yorker telly critic, has talked about this, uh, where a lot of your time was, you know, when you mentioned it, was saying, no, honestly, it's really good. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a big game changer television-wise. Not all of it's aged very well, but um, the good episodes are still fantastic and there's still a lot to love about it. And you're also a big fan of Mad Men, I believe? Yeah, we did a big... My husband and I did a big Mad Men rewatch last year and it's something that is, that stands up even better than you remember it. Yes. Bereft of all the hype. Yeah. 
Um, I did something the same, watched it during lockdown again yeah. and was amazed by just how good lots of it was. Yeah, and all the way through, like, you know, it doesn't slump off uh, towards the end and it's not like anything else. And there's so many shows that got, you know, there were bad imitations of, um, but nobody could really do what Mad Men did. And when you look at it now, it's like every episode feels like a short story. Like, they're, you know, they don't follow the sort of usual TV structure and the last lines or the last scene is usually incredibly vivid and effective and uh, it's just an incredible piece of work. I felt bereft when we finished the rewatch. I was like, nothing's that good. And then Barry is something we've had debate on in our TV and streaming spot because I loved the initial couple of series Mm. of it and felt it ran away from itself. We should have finished at the end of series three and not gone to series four. Where do you stand on that? Oh, I know what you mean, but I did think that Series 4 did work in the end. I think, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, um, but I think what it ended up saying about how we glamorise and romanticise violence was brilliant. I think so. For all you know, we put a chip in you, right? We know where you are. (laughs) Maybe not. But uh, ultimately, that's what it's about. You tell us what you like, you tell us what you need. And... uh, We'll see to it that we can get you everything we can. That guy's here to kill me. He's got a weapon on him or something. That guy's here to kill me. That's one of Agent Curtis's men, Barry. What? I, no, that's Search not. He's got a weapon on him or something. What? That guy's I thought here he was with you guys. Me. No, he's with you. Shit. This is for Crucible and Hank. Yeah, there was a lot of murder in Barry. A lot of murder. <laughs> but, you know, I think, as I said, I think one of the things it did really well is that it never made murder seem cool. No. You know, it made it seem very grubby and horrible. And uh, and then there would also be really funny bits And as some well. spectacular shootouts in it as well. Yeah, just this, incredibly well shot. We need to finish. And we don't have a clip for your buried treasure because you're indulging your French obsession again in this. Oh, la, la. <laughs> yes. It's uh, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, which uh, is a film by Jacques Demy, um, which is apparently very well known in, in France. But I think over here, the film that we know by him is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And I first saw uh, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, which like basically means the young girls of Rochefort. Um, and it starts, it stars Catherine Deneuve and her real life sister, Françoise Dorléac. And um, I saw it in a, shall we say, Unorthodox streaming service, uh, didn't have any subtitles. I really couldn't understand most of it. It was very confusing, uh, but I loved the music. And the it's just, a, a and I love the visuals. It also stars Gene Kelly in a cameo role. And it's like a candy-coloured musical fantasy and is just a, a, an absolute feast for the eyes. The Demoiselle de Rochefort. Yeah. Okay, that's your last choice. Thank you, Anna Carey. And The Making of Molly, adapted for the stage, is on in the arc from the 23rd of February to the 16th of March. And you can get tickets, particularly for school groups, at arc.ie. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today and-